0: Morning, everyone. Uh, so before we get into the lesson, um, first of all, it's just really encouraging to see everyone who's here. Uh, and if you're visiting with us for the first time, um, something that I think is important to note from time to time. Uh, what we're really trying to do here, uh, as a group, um, we're really striving to be very earnest and sincere. Uh, in our love for God and our treatment of who God is as holy, as a father, as a king. And the things we do together in our worship um, might seem extremely simple and even unusual uh, compared to a lot of ways churches worship, but it's really because we are striving to um, do everything that we do with absolute certainty that we are doing what pleases God. We want to make sure that what we're doing comes from God's word and we're not adding anything onto that and risking displeasing God or risking mistreating God's will for us, right? So if if you have any questions about anything you see, please ask us. We actually really love to be questioned. We love to study things out. Um, We look forward to opportunities to be patient in Bible studies with people. Um, So please ask us if you have any questions about anything that we're doing. Any of the men here, women, we would all be glad to just talk and sit down and open our Bibles with you. Um, We're uh, going through this year a theme on the lives of Elijah and Elisha, and you'll see I've titled it The Gospel According to Elijah and Elisha, um, because one of the goals is really to pull lessons and really to understand these accounts in ways that typify or realize Jesus. And we'll be in 1 Kings 21. Uh, we were in 1 Kings 19 last week, uh, and one of the one of the things about this series is there's going to be some chapters we're going to skip over because Elijah is not involved or Elisha is not involved. Um, so I'll I'll briefly summarize something in chapter 20 in, in just a moment um, to kind of get the flow of of the the history leading up to where we are. Um, but everything in this chapter, you'll notice this big arrow and circle. This whole chapter takes place in Jezreel, uh, and this was one of the main cities of uh, northern Israel in this time frame and we 're going to see Naboth, this key person in this account, had a vineyard here next to ahab's palace but it 's kind of in the northern central territory of of Israel and just kind of remember we're in the uh, in the reign of Ahab and Um, It's years into his reign now with Elijah uh, having already prayed for the famine. The waters have been sent on the land again to renew the land. Uh, Ahab has seen God's glory on Mount Carmel when fire came down and consumed the altar and the sacrifice. The prophets of Baal were killed. Uh, Elijah departed from Israel, fleeing from Jezebel and her threats, and has returned. And you'll notice in chapter 21, verse 1, it says, Now it came about after these things in chapter 20. And there's some purposeful continuity in these accounts um, that will amplify the lessons in chapter 21. Basically, what happened in chapter 20 is actually really surprising. I may give a lesson on it eventually going through the chapter as well. But Ahab was at war with the Arameans. And you'll notice on the northeastern side of Israel's territory, you have Aram, which also would have been known as Syria, the Syrians. Uh, Ahab was continuously at war with the Arameans. They were always trying to push, especially this territory, Ramoth-Gilead, just to the uh, southeast of that circle there on Jezreel. So the Arameans were trying to constantly take land from Israel. Well, in chapter 20, God, for no reason other than just his own great graciousness, sends a prophet to Ahab to assure him of victory over the Arameans. He tells him exactly how to win the battle. He assures him he will win the battle, and he does. And the prophet again comes again after the battle and tells him that he needs to fortify his troops because the Arameans are going to come back at a similar time in the next year, and they do. And a prophet then comes back again and assures him again that he'll have victory, and they do. Ahab is atrociously wicked, but God is just graciously giving him these victories. Well, in the end of the account, the king of Aram, Ben-Hadad, begs for mercy. And without consulting God, Ahab very quickly says, Oh, my brother Ben-Hadad, and they make a covenant together. Look at the very end of uh, chapter 20, uh, verse 42. The prophet comes to Ahab and he said to him, Thus says the Lord, because you have let go out of your hand, the man whom I devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall go for his life and your people for his people. So the king of Israel went to his house sullen and vexed and came to Samaria. Sullen and vexed, so at least Ahab was finally like responding in some way to something he was hearing from the Lord. And interesting, we're going to see this term again, sullen and vexed. This this term, sullen and vexed, is actually only used in the entire Bible referring to Ahab's responses here. There's nowhere else in the Old Testament where these words are even used, sullen or vexed. Used nowhere else. So that leads us into chapter 21, and we're going to start with looking at Ahab's problem here. Now it came about after these things, and this is 1 Kings 21, by the way. I think I I may have said that, but just to reiterate, 1 Kings 21. Now it came about after these things that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard which was in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab spoke to Naboth saying, give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is close beside my house and I will give you a better vineyard than it in its place, if you like, I will give you the price of it in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid me that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. So Ahab came into his house sullen and vexed because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and ate no food. Wow. So that, that sets the scene for the whole chapter. Everything in this chapter centers around this first initial interaction here. So you have this man Naboth who, as you can clearly see, seems to be a righteous man. You remember in 1 Kings uh, chapter 19, God assured Elijah that there were 7,000 people who had not bowed the knee to Baal. I get the impression Naboth is probably one of these people who has remained loyal to God just based on his conviction here. And it's amazing he's maintained all this conviction and love for God, even though he's so close to this palace that belongs to Ahab and Jezebel. Uh, So Ahab sees that Naboth has this vegetable garden. He wants it. He makes a seemingly pretty good offer. Uh, I mean, he offers him a better vineyard if he wants it. But you notice in uh, verse 3, to Naboth it's not about the money and it's not about a different vineyard or anything like that. How does he respond? And I think Ahab's response seems so unusual when he becomes sullen and vexed again. But I think it's actually because of specifically the reason Naboth gives. Here is the Lord, again, getting in the way of something Ahab wants. I think Naboth bringing the Lord into his reasoning pulls back out of Ahab's heart this conviction that he had previously in the past chapter, something that he may have been trying to bury or get away from, by just investing in this hobby of his to get another vegetable garden, right? So it's just like he just couldn't get away from the Lord, getting in the way of his life, right? So like everywhere he went, there's the Lord again. Mind you, Ahab is an Israelite. This isn't a Gentile king, right? He's in, he's in God's territory. This is God's promised land. So let's, let's not forget that. Ahab is so evil, you almost forget this is a circumcised Israelite, uh, So he turns away his face, sullen and vexed, doesn't eat any food. And just, this is extremely childish. I don't know if any of you have ever reacted this way when you haven't gotten your way, but it's almost like everything in your life, you're purposely making it come to a complete stop to bring attention to your grief. There's something interesting about this account. Ahab and Jezebel both contrast God as opposites. How Ahab rules as a king is the opposite of how God rules his nation as a king. So Ahab draws as much attention to his emotion as possible, right? Because he's just not getting his way. How long has God not been getting his way in his nation? How long has God not been getting the things that he's reasonably been asking for? And has God been drawing, like, extraordinary attention to how he's been impacted by those things? One thing we learn about God is... Through Ahab, we learn that God has incredible self-control with revealing his emotions. And Ahab is burdening everyone else in his kingdom just because he didn't get a vegetable garden. So Jezebel, his wife, is going to find out about this, and let's see what she does. So she's going to present a solution in verse 5. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, How is it that your spirit is so sullen that you are not eating food? So he said to her, because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, give me your vineyard for money or else if it pleases you, I will give you a vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. So just notice, you see how Ahab is misrepresenting Naboth while like totally, fairly representing what he said? So I made him this great offer, I was promising him like all these things that even a better vineyard and he just said, I'm not going to give it to you. Well, let's look at verse seven. Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now reign over Israel? Arise, eat bread, and let your heart be joyful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, sealed them with his seal, and sent letters to the elders and to the nobles who were living with Naboth in his city. Now she wrote in the letters, saying, Proclaim a fast, and seat Naboth at the head of the people, and seat two worthless men before him, and let them testify against him, saying, You cursed God and the king then take him out and stone him to death. So that's Jezebel's solution. Do you see, by the way, how automatic this was for Jezebel to come up with this? I mean, you look at verse 7, like, it was already in her mind as soon as he, she heard this from Ahab. It says, don't worry about it. Eat your food. I'm going to get you this vineyard. It was already, this whole scheme just immediately was in her mind, just automatic. Um, and notice she's offering Ahab joy on the basis of promise. But how is she doing that? That's exactly what God does for us as our king. He offers us joy on the basis of promise. And really, what the devil does and what God does really are, in some senses, somewhat similar, which is how the devil uh, really schemes so craftily. We're, We're being offered joy on the basis of two promises. And what we'll see with Jezebel here is Ahab actually never is told what exactly she did. Even though I'm sure he deep down knew what she was doing and how she had done this, he's never explicitly told. And so she offers him joy without revealing the price or the means through which he could get that joy, right? Um, so, and notice in verse 8 through 10, who she wrote these letters to. These were the nobles and the elders who lived with Naboth in the city. I would imagine that potentially these could be people that Naboth would have thought were his friends. And Jezebel, writing in Ahab's name, assumes that this was going to work, which reflects a lot about their character. right? Uh, So let's look at verse 11 through 16 and how this plays out. So the men of the city, the elders and the nobles who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them, just as it was written in the letters which she had sent them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth at the head of the people. Then, two, then the two worthless men came in and sat before him, and the worthless men testified against him, even Naboth, before the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent word to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. When Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive, but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. Did you notice the emphasis in verse 11? There's actually a double emphasis. They did exactly as it was written. You know, what's interesting is God had written things for them to do, and it's like no matter what God did, no matter how much he begged, no matter what he revealed about himself, they would never do what he had written. Well, Jezebel writes these letters that are murderous in their intention, and they have no problem doing exactly as it was written in the letter. You find some, like, strange, cruel irony in all of that? You know what would solve our obedience to God? And like the caution of our obedience, the reverence within our obedience, if we actually saw God as a king. If we actually saw God as a king. And if we would just let God change our intentions and our motives, Jezebel is simply appealing to impure intentions and motives that these men clearly already had. You don't see any, like, disagreement they have with the letter. There's no meeting they have. It's just, again, just like with Jezebel, it just seems automatic. And I'm going to suggest we can get to a place we humble ourselves where our obedience to God becomes much more automatic the more we understand how real our God is, right? The problem is nobody here is actually treating God like he's living or real. Therefore, his word, his character, his interests are all overlooked. Um, another thing about this is how parallel this is to Jesus. Do you remember in Luke 21 and in the other Gospels that are synoptic as well? In Luke 21, Jesus actually refers to his conflict with the Pharisees like the Pharisees being people who were leased a vineyard but weren't the real owners of that vineyard. But because they wanted that inheritance they were willing to murder the son in hopes that it would become theirs, right? So Jesus, just like Naboth, was a righteous man who stood in the way of something that the Pharisees wanted, and because of that, their solution was what? Put forward worthless men who will testify against him and say, he has blasphemed both God and the king. You remember a part of the testimony that the Pharisees brought in the leadership of the temple and the chief priests and the scribes? Their argument was that Jesus had both blasphemed the God of Israel by claiming himself to be God, but also the emperor to refuse to pay taxes to Caesar. But it was all just false, falsified information. right? So Naboth, it's interesting just how threaded and woven together all of this is to the nature of the gospel, which I think helps us to almost approach this much more personally in its nature when we consider that. So verse 15 through 16. Um, and, I'm sorry, one more thing. 2 Kings uh, chapter 9, verse 26, one detail that's not here. So in Leviticus, you could not sell the inheritance that God gave you. It was commanded by God that you had to keep your inheritance, right? And the only way for that inheritance to be lost is everybody would have to die who rightfully it belonged to, which meant sons and fathers alike. So in order for, for Ahab to rightfully actually take this, who had to die besides Naboth? His children. Second Kings chapter 9 will reflect on the fact that Naboth's sons were also killed with him. So they had to kill every single person who had a right to this inheritance for it to be seized. And look at verse 15. Does Jezebel reveal what had happened? Really? She doesn't say that Naboth was murdered. She doesn't say that Naboth had been killed. He's dead. And in verse 16, Ahab doesn't bother to ask any questions or investigate any further. He's got what he wants. And he goes to the vineyard to take possession of it. Well, that leads us to 17 through 29, God's judgment on the matter. We're going to start with 17 through 19. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise. Go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone down to take possession of it. You shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, Have you murdered and also taken possession? And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, In the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, the dogs will lick up your blood, even yours. First thing, can you imagine how potentially frustrating this would be for Elijah? Or even potentially intimidating. Because you remember why he left Israel in the first place in chapter 19, right? Jezebel had threatened to kill him. And here Elijah is being told, now go right back to who to you is the most frustrating person in the whole world, and you tell him what could potentially endanger your life once again. Because you look at how plain and explicit Elijah's words were, right? He's not just saying what God had said in chapter 20 where the king of Aram, your life and the lives of your people will be spent for him, for him to replace him. This is very explicit. The dogs will lick up your blood. Second thing, in verse 19, do you notice the question he's supposed to ask Ahab? Do you think if our decisions were repeated back to us or our sins in the form of a question, do you think we would think about them more? The thing is, God is trying to help Ahab discover the depth of his sin so that he can see it too, right? This isn't just an accusation. This is to aid, to aid Ahab to understand what he had done. Because the only reason Ahab would do these things, just like when Jesus said, Father, forgive them, they do not know what they're doing, Ahab simply has not taken into proper consideration what it is he has actually done. And what we're going to make is an application from this. God's work is uncovering the depth of what we bury through our uh, through our sin. So, verse 20 uh, through 26. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? And he answered, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring evil upon you and will utterly sweep you away and will cut off from Ahab every male Both bond and free in Israel, and I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger, and because you have made Israel sin. Of Jezebel also has the Lord spoken, saying, The dogs that will eat Jezebel in the district of Jezreel. The one belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs will eat, and the one who dies in the field, the birds of the heaven will eat. Surely... There was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. He acted very abominably in following idols according to all that the Amorites had done whom the Lord cast out before the sons of Israel. So just think about this scene. Imagine you're Ahab and you're like beginning to walk into this vineyard. You're looking around and you're pretty happy about what you're looking at. And you see the beautiful vegetables, and like everything is exactly as you hoped it would be. And maybe you're like, you know, kneeling down and like looking at some of the vegetation. And then you look up, and here comes Elijah in his camel hair clothing. And it's like, oh, great. Here he comes. And you just imagine like verse 20, almost, almost Ahab saying that with a big sigh, like, Have you found me, oh my enemy? And you just see Elijah's stern fierceness. I'm going to suggest to you that this fierceness comes out of a deep love for God, but also a deep and profound love for Ahab, which will be seen at the end of the the chapter. God's judgment here, was it fair? Was this fair? So dogs had apparently licked up the blood of Naboth. And I mean, in terms of the sins that Ahab committed, this is just one on this humongous list of things that Ahab had done against the Lord and against his people. If anything, this is unfair. Unfair for God. Because Ahab has done so much worse than just this thing. If anything, this judgment is very merciful. Why just Ahab? Why just Jezebel? Why not the nobles and the elders of the city who participated in all of this? Even in this judgment, as fierce as it is, there is an incredible depth of mercy and consideration within it. And you look at the emphasis in verse 25 through 26, and I think this is meant to amplify the conclusion of the chapter. Ahab was someone really special. He was just a really special guy. There was nobody like Ahab who committed so much iniquity so brazenly before the Lord. That's what made him so special. And the Amorites, they weren't God's people. So if anything, Ahab was exceedingly and unfathomably, incomparably worse than the Amorites that the Lord had cast out. And if the Lord had cast out the Amorites forcefully, well, why not do that with Ahab? Why not stop him? Why not do something to put it to an end? If the Amorites were worth putting to death, then Ahab, at the same time, would be just as worthy, right? Well, let's look at 27 and 20 through 29. It came about when Ahab heard these words, that he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and fasted, and he lay in sackcloth and went about despondently. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the evil in his days but I will bring the evil in the, upon his house in his son's days. Wow. Can you imagine, just from God's perspective, what did it take to get here? What did it take to get here? And how much was God willing to spend and sacrifice to get here? Another thing about this too, have you ever humbled yourself in front of somebody you had wronged and you're like begging their forgiveness or asking, um, saying sorry or asking them uh, to, um, I don't know, just forgive you for it. And then they just look at you with like anger and suspicion. And you know that it's not going to be that easy, right? You know, it's easier for me to be merciful to people the less impacted I am by their sin or whatever they've done. And it's easier for me to be passive about somebody's actions, even if they're toward me, the less I actually know them or the less I've invested into the relationship. right? Nobody invested more into Ahab than God himself. But I mean, it's just like that. You can just hear the relief in God's voice as he's speaking to Elijah. You know what else is interesting about this? I don't even know if God was forgiving Ahab here, like at all. I mean like any kind of forgiveness. He doesn't say that he was forgiven. He just says, you know, I'll delay my punishment, actually. I'll just put it off a little bit longer. He doesn't wait for Ahab to prove himself. He doesn't wait to bear fruits of repentance. Verse 27, to God is enough. Think about the kind of zeal that shows God had. To have full, complete, restored, Reconciled fellowship with Ahab. How badly does this show God wanted that? And what was God willing to risk to demonstrate that? You didn't know because of this? Because of this, Judah's lineage leading to Jesus was almost totally wiped out. Jehoshaphat would give one of his sons to Jezebel's daughter, Athaliah. And because of Athaliah, Ahab and Jezebel and their evil would sink into Judah and almost destroy the remnant of God's preserved lineage of David. How much was God willing to risk here? And what about Naboth's wife? What about the wives of his sons? It's all a price God is willing to pay. So some principles and applications in the first one. What God quietly sacrifices and pays for mercy is unfathomable and astonishing. You think about what God is actually willing in a very real way to sacrifice here. What is he willing to sacrifice here? The whole nation? Naboth, his sons? What's God willing to sacrifice to have a sobering conversation with a sinner that could change them? Adam and Eve. After they sinned and they were promised they would surely die... What did it cost God after the fact to talk with them? Cain and Abel. What did it cost God to have a conversation with Cain after he had murdered Abel? What did it cost? In Acts chapter 2, when Jesus is being preached on the day of Pentecost, what did it cost for that sermon to be preached, for that conversation? What did it cost? What God quietly sacrifices and pays is astonishing. Uh, Turn to Proverbs um, 14, um, verse 4. This verse will not make any sense, but um, maybe after talking about it and relating it a little bit. The idea for this verse is God is willing to get very dirty to get into a reconciled relationship with sinners, and even with his own people. Proverbs 14, verse 4, Where no oxen are, the manger is clean, but much revenue comes by the strength of the ox. So just in this little parable type thing, you've got this manger and well it's nice that it's so clean. You know, it's it's pristine, it's beautiful, but there's no ox. So you've got the manger, you've got the stall and yes, it's pretty, but you're not getting anything out of it. You're not having to do the work to clean anything and so you I mean you have a lot more freedom, you know? If you get an ox, you're going to lose your freedom. But if you want revenue, the reality is you're going to have to clean up the mess of the ox. You're going to have to get food. You're going to have to spend money on the food. You're going to have to end up plowing with the ox. You're going to have to end up doing work in your field. You're going to lose a lot of your freedom. But that's just that's just the reality. What are you willing to do for reconciled fellowship first with brethren? Are you willing to get your hands dirty? Are you willing to be inconvenienced to show hospitality? Maybe to extend yourself out to participate more in the work of the church. Maybe even just to be present at assemblies. Are you willing to be inconvenienced for those things? To have more spiritual conversations, whatever it is, what are you willing to do for the sake of mercy? Are you willing to be the one to take that initiative? If we're not willing to take the initiative, it disconnects us from God's example. It's not that we first loved him, but that he first sent his son to us to inspire us in turn then to imitate that love. Second thing is, Satan drowns expensive convictions with worthless pleasures. And then in parentheses, in hope that the cost just is hidden. Uh, We need to be willing to bring God into our decisions. This is why it's so important to know God's word, to know New Testament teaching, to understand God's character. Satan is a master of drowning. And by drowning, I don't just mean destroying. I mean burying beneath where it can be viewed. And that's what exactly what Satan did through Jezebel to Ahab, is here's the field, don't think too much about it, just take it. And you imagine Ahab could have said to Elijah, I didn't kill, I didn't kill Naboth. That was Jezebel. Talk to her. You know, and we could easily think, I wasn't there when Jesus died and was crucified. Man, that was the Jews and Pilate and the people around him in the uh, time 2,000 years ago. I'm, I'm way disconnected. That's not my fault. God's trying to bring us into reality. And what Ahab needed was to be soberly confronted with reality. And deep down, he knew that what Elijah said was truth and there was nothing for him to say what could he say it was true you know the problem why people have so much feeling of freedom to live in sin or even to just serve god on their own terms is they're not being confronted with reality and what god is calling his people to do is like jesus jesus went around simply confronting people with the reality of the kingdom of god And speaking of it as a reality, you have to make a decision about this. You cannot just stay on one side of the fence pretending like you have freedom that God hasn't given you. You will die in your sin if you do not obey the gospel. Period. Ahab could have pretended like this wasn't reality, but he responded. When's the last time? When is the last time you actually reacted to a judgment of God? I mean, at all. Where you had any sense of sorrow or trembling or distress or whatever, anything. When's the last time you actually were moved by something God had said? Because you see how precious this was to God. Ahab was going to fall right back away. But that didn't stop God from trying to hold this in his hand and say, look at this treasure. How beautiful and precious a response to God's word in his eyes is precious. One last thing on on this uh, this note. Ahab, he needed his reality shaken. And God was willing to sacrifice Naboth and his sons as he was willing to sacrifice Jesus to shake that reality, again, like Cain and Abel. Uh, If Jesus' is death, everything that he went through, If that is not enough to shake your reality, you can choose to live how you want to live, and God will allow you to do that. But you're going to stand before God, and you're going to stand in front of his throne, and you'll have nothing to say in your defense. And you are going to lose your soul forever for nothing. Ultimately, was that vineyard worth what Ahab lost? (laughs) Vegetables? I mean, it's like Israel saying, wow, there were leaks back in Egypt. We should go back. And God called that an iron furnace. Would you want to hop into an iron furnace because there's leaks and vegetables inside of it? Folks, we've got to let God put us in reality, right? Satan drowns expensive, serious, eternal convictions with worthless pleasures that are worth nothing, Finally, the grace of God empowers us in relationships and circumstances that would otherwise overwhelm us and break us. Uh, this is more focused on Elijah going right back to Ahab. Imagine again just how frustrating that could be. Ahab back to his old ways all over again. What am I doing, wasting my time? And you imagine again just the frustration of Ahab continuing to murder innocent and righteous people, the remnant dissipating. You know, at UPS, I've mentioned this a lot, but that job, to be honest, was it was miserable. It was a good job. I loved that job. But, I mean, the environment was stressful to what seemed like the absolute max. Everybody was profane, and the way they would deal with being tired and distressed, they would have outbursts of anger. It was constant gossip and profanity. It just was It was overwhelming. And there would be so many days where I would think, I've got to quit this job. This is not good for me spiritually. This is, this is not where I need to be. And then there would be days where I would lose my temper and I'd have to apologize to my coworkers and I would think, this is not worth me sitting against God. This is not worth it. Well, turn to Jeremiah chapter 8. I was reading Jeremiah a lot at that time and God helped me to understand things a little bit differently than I was thinking um, after some time. Look at Jeremiah 8 verses 18. Jeremiah was in the most miserable circumstances anybody had ever been in. And he was going to be in those circumstances for over 40 years non-stop, all by himself. And he says in chapter 8 verse 18, my sorrow is beyond healing. My heart is faint within me. Look at chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had in the desert a wayfarer's lodging place, that I might leave my people and go from them. For all of them are adulterers, an assembly of treacherous men. Look at chapter 20. Chapter 20. And by the way, that was all Jeremiah talking, obviously, in those and reflecting on his circumstances chapter 20 verse 7 and 8 he says "O oh lord you have deceived me and i was deceived you have overcome me and prevailed i have become a laughingstock all day long everyone mocks me for each time i speak i cry aloud i proclaim violence and destruction because the word of the lord has resulted in reproach and derision all day long all right so you want to sign up sign up for that turn to chapter 40 this is what i think may be the most powerful series of verses in the entire Old Testament. Jeremiah was miserable. He wanted to leave. He hated where he was. Everybody was plotting and scheming against him, and he knew it really well. He was the target of the nation around him. And again, 40 years, nonstop, every day, day after day, the same thing. Chapter 40, verse 4, Jerusalem's destroyed now. The captain of Nebuchadnezzar's bodyguard He's talking to Jeremiah, and he says, But now, behold, I am freeing you today from the chains which are on your hands. If you would prefer to come with me to Babylon, come along, and I will look after you. But if you would prefer not to come with me to Babylon, never mind. Look, the whole land is before you. Go wherever it seems good and right for you to go. See, You see that, right? Jerusalem's destroyed. The captives are now being led to Babylon. And he says, look, man, you've got total freedom.'" Come with me, I'll protect you. You want to go somewhere else, fine. You have absolute, you go wherever you want to go. You've got total freedom. Verse 5, as Jeremiah was still not going back, he said, go on back then to Gadaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, whom the king of Babylon has appointed over the cities of Judah and stay with him among the people. It's hard to describe. Just how amazing that is without really reading the history of Israel to let it sink in. These were the worst people who had ever lived on the planet up to this point. And Jeremiah has been so taught and strengthened by the grace of God, even when he was free to go wherever he wanted, without saying a word in his mind, he thought, I'll go where God's people are. This meant he was going to go to Egypt with them. And in Egypt, he was going to watch them die from God's judgment. Here's what I thought about UPS if I leave just because things are hard on me, there are people here who maybe, maybe, God could save. And it's going to be hard and I'm going to be overwhelmed. But that's okay. Because that's what God's grace does. That's what Elijah learned. I'm not saying we can't quit jobs that are overwhelming and push us in bad ways. I'm not saying that. We have the freedom to go where we want to go. What I am saying, though, is if you find yourself in overwhelming circumstances, if you learn about God's mercy in the midst of those circumstances, God will give you strength. and He'll teach you things that will change your heart forever. God didn't tell Ahab about this mercy and delay of wrath. He said to Elijah, do you see what Ahab just did? Look, that was for Elijah. That's where we'll stop our lesson. If you need the prayers of the church here, or if you are convicted that you need to act in response to the gospel, don't let a day go by without changing your heart and letting God save you from your sin. But if you need uh, just encouragement or prayers for anything, uh, we would be glad to help you and serve you as we stand and sing our invitation song.